Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of From the Wastes. Today's guest is David Lieban, writer, producer, and director of the film A Feral World, the story of an orphan boy in a post-apocalyptic world who meets a grieving woman who is trying to find her lost daughter. Good morning, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Why don't we go ahead and get started and uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what, and what you do. Okay. Um, my name is David Lieban, and uh, I am a filmmaker, and I'm also a professor at the University of Colorado Denver, where I am the chair of the film and TV department. Uh, one of the benefits of being there is that I get to collaborate with other filmmakers and film students, and uh, it's a good support system there. But um, I'm from New York originally, and um, I have been in uh, different parts of the country over my career. And uh, currently I'm in Colorado. How do you like Colorado compared to New York? Oh, it's so much better. New York was, uh, I mean, I'm, it's a little too dense for me. I mean, I, I remember like I went to grad school in Brooklyn College and I spent, you know, a good part of my, uh, my, my life stuck in traffic on the Belt Parkway. So like I, I don't miss Colorado. I mean, I don't miss New York. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a friend in New York and um, he'll occasionally post videos and he literally lives smack dab in the middle of New York in a high rise. And he'll post videos like out from his balcony <clears throat> and it's just, you know, solid city you know, it's just a completely different, one of the things that fascinates me about him is that how it's a, it's a, it's like a different planet, just a completely different world. It's a lifestyle choice. You have to be prepared to like, uh, want that. Um, and I mean, I, I like things about it, but, uh, honestly, you know, it's not a great lifestyle for the way I, for the introvert that I typically am. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. Um, what what's your first memory of of post-apocalyptic fiction like was it a movie or a book or a tv show or uh i definitely remember it specifically it was uh i was watching on a little black and white tv show uh it was omega man the, the charlton heston film mm -hmm. i remember seeing that movie and just kind of really like you know into the idea of this man all by himself in, I think it was New York, you know, and mm. he's like just driving down the middle of the street with a machine gun and doing whatever he wanted to do. And I remember being really impacted by that story. They kind of lost me a little bit when they get into the vampire thing, but uh, you know, it, it still holds up in, you know, in a way as far as uh, uh, you know, an interesting flick, you know? Yeah. I think they refer to that as <clears throat> one of the Charlton Heston's Holy Trinity. Soylent Green, Omega Man, and Planet of the Apes. Oh, okay. Yeah. He kind of had a little post-apocalypse thing going on there, it seemed like, for, for a while. Um, <laughs> but I must have been like 10 years old or 12 years old. I was young when I saw it, too. Yeah. I remember I really, like, I don't know. I, I found it attractive at a level to be, like, the only person in the city, you know, like, you know, maybe that goes back to my feeling of uh, claustrophobia amongst crowds. And, um, but uh, I, I just remember thinking like, wow, that's so cool to be there uh, in that world. But, you know, yeah. And reality, not, not so cool, but. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course, this whole social distancing thing, I'm kind of feeling like, hey, I've been doing this my whole life, trying, <laughs> trying to stay away from everybody. And uh, this ain't that tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is it about uh, apocalyptic things that you find interesting? Um, and what's what's your favorite type of, of PA fiction? What do I find interesting about it? I find uh, the idea of how people will behave if there is no structure into the structure to the society. Like, will people really be the barbarians that uh, they show in Mad Max or will people just, you know, protect one another or will, you know, what will that be like the pockets of, of civilization? I think that really fascinates me as far as what will you become when you have to become something else? Uh, so that really interests me a lot. Um, my favorite type of post-apocalyptic fiction, I guess I, I, you know, I like the Road Warrior movies, you know, like I, another huge influence for me when I was in college was uh, the Road Warrior, you know, the sequel to Mad Max. 
and I just find that, you know, he, A, he was a really cool character, you know, like mm -hmm. everything about him was awesome. Uh, but um, I don't know, I just found like the hero amongst the wasteland to me uh, really st struck a nerve uh, as far as uh, he has no reason to do it anymore, yet he still, you know, is trying to do good where he sees it, you know, at the same point, he's ruthless. So, right. um, um, I don't know, I find that really fascinating as well. So I, I, I like the post-apocalyptic fiction that, you know, I'm not, I, I do like zombie movies and I do watch them and I like them at some level, but I like the ones that don't have a supernatural element more than the ones that do. Do you find that uh, you enjoy like uh, nuclear holocaust or mm. um, uh, environmental catastrophes or like you said, zombies? Is there any any of those types of how's what's your favorite way for the world to end i guess is what i'm trying to ask <laughs> you know that's a good question because when i made this movie i kind of i was very inspired by the road also that's one of my favorite books and i really was you know taken by the notion that he never tells you how it ended it just did mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of like when you get the straight answer in fiction, this is, you know, when you get the straight answer, like in Lost, they, they tell you what actually it was. It's like, oh, really? Okay, that's sort of disappointing. Right. Uh, but like the mystery of what it was is more interesting to me. That being said, I, you know, the post-apocalyptic stories that take place after a nuclear holocaust, that one is interesting to me, but I also feel like there'd be a lot less life than they are in the movies, you know, like that mm. one seems less realistic to me. So, you know, an environmental disaster or, you know, a, a failure of power or something, I think I like better, you know, um, something like, you know, here we are living in this pandemic, you know, and so that it, all this fiction that is out there about, you know, you know, devastation due to, to sickness and disease, it's most scary to me, but it's also the most likely. I want to go back and uh, talk about your, your, your fascination in how people uh, would react in, in an apocalyptic situation. And do you ever, do you ever think, um, you know, we're going along day to day, everything's pretty good. You know, there's little wars here and there and, and, and things going on. And, and then all of a sudden something and, and, and your, your faith in humanity is like, we're okay. You know, I think, I think we're doing pretty well. And then something happens and you hear on the news about, you know, riots or, you know, people like, like Black Friday, you know, humanity is great. And then Black Friday happens and people are literally stampeding each other, killing each other, trying to buy stuff. Seeing those things happen in in the world we live in, what do you think, how, how do you think humanity would deal with, do you have an optimistic view that, you know, we'd have communities that would come up and band together and, and, and help each other? Or do you think there would be just bands of raiders running around in assless chaps and motorcycles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to steal the, the gasoline? Uh, I have a little bit more faith than like the, the sad part of it. You know, I, I feel like, um, you know, I guess what I like about the walking dead is that these people band together to help each other and stay alive. And I, and I imagine that would happen. Like the neighbors that are on my street, I don't know them that well, but if something were to happen to one of their kids, I'd be right there to help them, you know? So I kind of feel like that would, you know, we see like the communities coming together at, at that point. I, I have a little bit more optimism when it comes to uh, that possibility that people would help each other out. But I, there would also be, uh, you know, tribes. I do think it would become tribalistic, you know, and so there would be the, the you know, people that tend to be criminals now would probably continue to be criminals then. Uh, you know, and I live in a state where a lot of people have guns, you know, so like they're, they're, they're not that quick to kick in somebody's door. Like in New York, you can't really have guns and right. uh, easily. And so like, not that you should, I'm not saying one way is better or the other. All I'm saying is that, you know, if you have them, you know, you're going to have those, uh, those protect protections. I do have to tell you though, like 
when all this pandemic started happening, so we have a lot of these props from my movie with these hatchets and with these machetes and, you know, I do martial arts, so I have bows and stuff like that. When all this started happening, <laughs> my wife and I placed these weapons around the house. Should we ever need them? <laughs> I've, I've seen too many movies. I was like, well, you know, <laughs> when you I need a machete, you know, I know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What what made you decide to create a uh, a post apocalypse film as opposed to another genre of film? You know, it is um, it's a it's a it's a it's a genre of fiction that has always been fascinating to me. Uh, the books I've re read, uh, most of the science fiction I read is is dystopian fiction or it's sci fi. Uh, um, I, you know, I would even argue like the William Gibson Neuromancer is cyber is a post apocalyptic. Uh, vision. I mean, it has a society, but it, it's also very dark and dismal. And um, so, what? Why did I do that one? Is it just you know? Even when I was in college, I I was I made an attempt at doing a post-apocalyptic movie. It wasn't very good, but I mean, I tried. And that came from you know being inspired by Road Warrior and the George Miller movies. And so, it's just something that stuck with me. And I had recently I had read a book called Seed by um, Rob Ziegler and that one was very inspiring to me and so um, it was uh, a genre that I just felt like I wanted to explore you know the questions that you asked me like what do why do I like it and where do I see it it was my way of sort of finding those answers you know like I really wondered what it would be like in that environment and so when you when I write these things um, it was a, a way for me to sort of pretend and explore and how would you survive and what things would be, uh, would still exist and what things would not. Have you always wanted to be a filmmaker? Did you want to be something else? Did you? Um, I kind of always wanted, you know, like I, I do remember distinctly, uh, I mean, as, as a little boy, I made uh, uh, animated movies. I'd use my dad's Super 8 camera and I made, uh, you know, animated films and I played around with my friends and we made movies with that. So I, I mean, that was early, as early as like 10 or 11, you know, so I was doing that then. I remember distinctly seeing Star Wars and um, I was probably 16 when Star Wars came out, something like that. And... I, and it just blew me away. Like I had never seen anything like it. And then I saw the making of the Star Wars, like something on one television show. And like that just blew me away. I remember like seeing uh, a shot where the, the guy doing the sound design was recording audio for the blasters in the, in the show. And what he did, there was these high tension wires that keep telephone poles up and he had a little mallet and he was hitting the the steel cable with this mallet and it made the noise i was like wow that is so cool i want to do that and, and so um i after that i was sort of hooked and um that's what i wanted to do well tell us about a feral world this uh pa film that you have now okay uh a feral world is a story about a boy who is orphaned and he's on his own and he befriends a woman that he meets along his travels who uh, is looking for her daughter who has been abducted. And so they journey together uh, in search of her. Uh, he, they, she has a dog with her. And so she's bringing this, the dog was her daughter's dog. And so she's hoping that the dog will uh, help her find uh, the daughter. And so uh, their journey together leads them to this evil despot. I noticed that the uh, when I was watching the the preview for that, <clears throat> the dog is a are they called a whippet? He's actually an Italian greyhound. He's, oh, uh, okay. He's related to a whippet, but he's like a miniature. Yeah. What was it like trying to trying to rein him in and as an actor? <laughs> you know what? It was uh, the hardest thing about working with the dog. It, well, two things. Uh, one of them is. Um, He's very needy, okay? And so in some ways that was very helpful because if we wanted him to look that way, all I had to do was be there and the dog would look at me. If I needed him to run that way, I would be like in a bush back there. And so mm. like he would run towards me. So wherever I was, the dog would go or look. And, and so, but the problem is that they're very fragile in a way. And so one day uh, 
we were shooting in this open space and he got bit on, a, on his paw by a fire ant. And at the same time, it was raining and uh, the dog is, you know, you know, he, he tends to overact when he gets hurt. <laughs> and so he's howling and screaming. We don't know what's going on and the poor dog is screaming. And so we shut everything down and we brought the dog to a vet. And then he was tearing, like by the time he got there, the pain had subsided and he was fine. But we, you know, we didn't know what had occurred. Uh, and so uh, that was the, the biggest problem was, was the, uh, how fragile he is. If it was too hot, you know, uh, and also I had to carry him around all the time, otherwise he'd be whining. And so my DP, my friend Jessica, uh, she hated working with that dog because she kept seeing like every time she'd look for me, I'm like, I'm standing there with this dog in my hand and she'd just shake her head like, oh my God. <laughs> so the dog was, um, uh, and one of the things is uh, that the dog wanted me to, I mean, my, my friend Jessica wanted me to have the uh, dog not be in there because Two of the things that they say about filmmaking is that, um, and we teach this to our students, is like avoid working with children and avoid working with animals. And we did both of those in this film. So, <laughs> Well, and speaking of working with children, I understand that your son is in the film. He is. Um, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, let me backtrack a little bit before I get into that. So one of the things that really inspires inspired me as a, as a filmmaker was to um, was the book by Robert Rodriguez called Rebel Without a Crew, and that was sort of the the, the book that I also have my students read uh, because he made El Mariachi based on uh, he wrote a script based on the things he had available to him, and he was very successful, obviously. So I, you know, in the world, if you're not a part of the Hollywood system, which I am not, you have to kind of be resourceful and look around to what's available to you. Uh, with that being said, I noticed my son, he was 11 when we first started the movie, but I wrote it the year before. So he's 10 years old. And I noticed that he was an actually a pretty good actor. He was interested in, in taking on roles. You know, the boy always wore costumes. Like he wore costumes all year round, like when he was little. And so when he put on those costumes, he was these characters, like he would be Captain Jack Sparrow, he would be Green Lantern, like, and he lived those roles. And I remember thinking like, wow, this kid actually can act. And I know like everyone thinks their kid is brilliant and, and genius. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go that far, but I do recognize that he has a lot of talent uh, in that area. And he was a, very self-aware, which is what's important for an actor. And I have two sons and the other boy is in the film as well as a, as a minor character uh, who doesn't really like to act and I would argue maybe not as committed or as good, you know, I, I, he's got other skills, but you know, he's not um, an actor. Uh, and so there was a couple things at play. So I wrote this script based on having this actor living in my house, you know, and so, uh, and then I, again, I'm referencing that book Seed. And what I liked about that book was that the, one of the main characters was a child. And I found that really interesting. Like, what would a boy be like in the apocalypse? Like, how would he survive? What would he become? How, what does a feral child really mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was where it kind of started from. And then the other part of it was that as we age and we look at our, we look back I can, one of the things that I'm really proud of, if nothing were ever to happen with this movie, you know, I had this experience with my, with my son that we can always look back upon and say like we, you know, when he's a, a man and he's got kids and he like, this is something that they can pull up and they can look at. I did this with my dad and I did this with my son. And uh, this is something that I'm really proud of. And so uh, I do think the film is good and it's gonna get some kind of play. But regardless, you know, this is a thing that he and I have and uh, that I'm really proud to have worked on with him. Yeah, I imagine one day he'll, <clears throat> you know, when, when he's an adult, when he starts getting in, into his 40s, 50s, you know, he'll, uh, this is going to be pretty, pretty darn important. You know? Yeah, and on top of that, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that he now wants to be a filmmaker. You know, he, he's oh, less cool. interested, like he wants to be an actor if he doesn't want to do theater acting, and I get it. Uh, but he, like, if somebody were to cast him in a role, he would do it. But he really is looking at going to film school and he wants to, you know, he makes films with his friends and stuff. So I feel pretty proud that he was inspired enough to do that kind of stuff, you know, that thing on his own. 
Were there any uh, times when when you were filming um, that you, I don't want to say felt uncomfortable, but like you, you, were you worried about him getting hurt or was he, I mean, he's a, he's oh, a yeah. young boy. I mean, young boys <laughs> like to be, you know, <laughs> a little rambunctious. And did you have to um, kind of treat him any differently than you would as, you know, treat him different, differently as a director than you would a father or was it kind of basically the same thing? No, you know, that's a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked that because a couple of things come to mind when, when I think about that. Because first of all, when he was surrounded by other actors who were, you know, far more experienced than he was, he saw their process and what they did in order to get into character and he watched them. And so he would try to do that as well. But he was a little boy and I, you know, and so, and because he's my son and I'm very close to him, I would like when I talk to an actor who's just a friend or somebody we hired, you know, I can be very direct. I'm like, okay, I need you to maybe do that a little bit. Or I actually, I, I can, I am, I'm softer with them because I don't want to hurt their feelings. I'm like, could you maybe try it this way or do it a little bit different or softer or, you know, be kinder or something like that. With Caleb, with my son, I would just say, what are you doing? Why are you doing it like this? And so I, I kind of embarrassed him in front of the other cast members and he pulled me aside, which I thought was pretty advanced for a kid his age. Like, dad, could you not talk to me like that in front of the other, other actors? I'm like, oh, wow. oh my God, you're, so, you're 100% right. I'm so sorry. And so it really changed my dynamic with him and I was much more gentle with him because you know one of the things that you do as a director is you're, and they say like the worst thing that you wanna do as far as a director is to tell an actor, no, say it like this, and then you mimic mm. what you want it to be. Right. Like it's insulting for an actor to hear that. Yet when you work with children, they want that, you know? And so that was interesting for me is like, he's like, no, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Just tell me how you want me to do it. I'll do it. I'd rather that than do this a hundred times. And so uh, that was also very interesting to me. Um, but uh, there were a couple of days where like he was 11 and we were shooting like one, you know, I, if you, I, you know, if he wasn't my child, I'd probably be breaking some labor law. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we were not a union uh, a program. Uh, we're not a union uh, film. And so uh, at the same point, so we were shooting really late one night and um, we had a tent set up so that in between setups, he could lay down and, and be, you know, go to sleep. And so we did all the shots that we needed to. And then we woke him up and it was probably like two in the morning. And, you know, if you have a, and I know you have children too, two in the morning, kids, kids don't function the way that no. they function when they're, no. when they are uh, uh, fully awake. And he was mad, you know, and he was just really surly and he was so pissed off at me. And, <laughs> You know, he was ready to throw in the towel right then and there. I'm like, dude, man, we we're so close to finishing this scene. I just need you to do this. So there were, there were a couple of times we had some early morning sunrise things. And, you know, he had, we had to like walk through this field and he was wearing these shoes that were, uh, you know, it was like a swampy kind of area. And so his feet got all wet and he was very unhappy. And he was like, oh, gross, you know. And so <laughs> he, he managed, okay, but there were some with some tricky little moments here and there for sure. Well, you, you shot this over the course of four years during that time, you know, maybe you're starting to get into year three. Did you ever think, what am I doing? I'm never going to finish this or, uh, cause it, you know, you've mentioned that, you know, sometimes, you know, when someone, when, you know, especially an independent filmmaker is making a movie, it it will take years, you know, just, you know, to get the money, to get just you know, to, for everything to kind of fall into place when it can fall into place. Um, but you had kind of planned this out, uh, you know, so we could follow the, uh, your son growing up, but did you ever think about just not doing it or, or were you so passionate about it that you just couldn't stop? Uh, I'd say it's the latter, but at the same point, you know, while you're doing it, you know, you don't know, nobody like, I'm not like, uh, since I'm not associated with a studio, no one's waiting for this movie. Like, you know, if I never finished it, you know, it'd be disappointing for some, but most of the, most, no one really cares, you know, it was a hundred percent me driving it. And if I did not drive it, it would not get done. 
And the way I see it is like I started this thing and I didn't want all that work to go to waste. All the people that donated their time and their, you know, I've had, you know, crowdfunding people that get like, I feel like it was my responsibility to finish the film. And, and I'm not really good at starting something and not finishing it. Like, you know, if I don't think it has life, I wouldn't even get involved with it. Uh, but I was really committed to getting it done. Um, but that's not to say that I don't, I didn't question all along, like, why the hell am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this? You know, like it's so time consuming and so expensive. And, you know, I got to ask for these favors and I'm constantly like, you know, you know, editing and locking myself away and, and, you know, and even my family, like they, they support it, but at the same point, they're like, don't go near dad, he's editing, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, every film I've ever made, I've always, whenever I finished it, I always said, uh, I'm never doing this again. And then like, like, I guess it's, you know, it's analogous to, you know, childbirth, you know, women forget how much it hurt. Mm -hmm. Never do it again, <laughs> you know. But I, after a period of time, I, you know, an idea sparks me. I'm like, you know, maybe I'll try it again. Um, and each time the, the I make a film, it gets a little bit better each time, as far as my skills and what I what I can do and how to get it accomplished. So there's definitely though like a big question of why am I doing this? <laughs> the locations that that are that are in your film. Um are really really cool and and uh post-apocalyptic looking you know run down can you will you talk about the process of of finding locations like that and and kind of how that works yeah sure i would say that that might have been one of the hardest things to accomplish in the whole movie i mean i spent like you know constantly whenever i was driving you know, I'd be looking at, oh my God, that's an old, that'd be a great location. Oh, look at that. That's falling apart. Uh, and so I would, I was always on the hunt for the right kind of location. And, you know, the thing about finding stuff from the highway is that the sound of the traffic really makes it not usable. Um, in fact, we have one scene in the movie that's like right next to a highway and it's so loud. We have to just dub over in all the audio. Like you can couldn't even hear each other talk oh, on wow. set uh, but it was it was an ongoing process and and um, as I was making the movie I was showing little the segments to the audience to like people that were involved with the movie and I'd kind of put it out there like I would you know because this is kind of a grassroots project I would just put the put it out there and say hey does anyone have uh, uh, access to like a burned down or a rundown facility and one thing would lead to another would need lead to another and lead to another. And, and I follow up on all these different uh, avenues and possibilities. And it's a lot of phone calls it's a lot of trial and error. And ultimately I found, you know, where I found the best locations were sort of like there all along. Uh, our villain lives in this lair, which is actually in the sub basement of a, uh, of, of uh, uh, on the CU Denver campus, there is a, it's a, it's, um, uh, it used to be a brewery called the Tivoli Brewery. And in the basement of that, there's these catacombs. And uh, once mm. I found that out, uh, I, you know, I was able to wrangle myself into that space and lock it down in the summer months when there wasn't a lot of activity. And uh, that was one of them, you know, and it just, and I didn't even think to look there while I was working right nearby. And then there was another place. So uh, one of the biggest finds was a former student of mine. He owns, his family owns a, a former sugar beet factory. And that thing is condemned and huge and, and really uh, hard to get in. In fact, he doesn't even want people to be there so I can't tell you where it is or what it's called because he doesn't want other people to go there and use it uh, but um, I saw another former student of mine had made a film and I said where is that location and so he told me whose it was and I'm like oh I know that guy he was in my class like 10 years ago and so he allowed me to shoot there um, and with a lot of conditions because it, it is a very hazardous hazardous place uh, you know and um, we had to make sure we didn't go in and go walking around and we had little kids on set too so we wanted to make sure that people weren't 
just walking about. But that was a huge find. Like once I found that that factory, uh, I was all set. You know, he gave he gave me the permission to do it. I'm like, oh my god, I can make the movie now. And one of the one of the trickier parts of this sort of thing is that since we were shooting it over multiple years, it would have been really hard if he said I can only do it one year, but not the next year. So both of these locations, I sort of they'd said, yeah, you can do it subsequent years from, from now. And then, you know, but they also had a caveat, like if I sell it or if it goes away, you know, that's out of my control. And that was one of the biggest worries about the whole movie was that, you know, anything had happened, you know, like I could stroke out or my actor could go away, you know, right. you know, I had other actors that said if they, you know, they were, they were committed to doing it, but you know, life happens and you know, what are you going to do? So there was that, that was the biggest challenge about shooting it over the four years was that the unknown of, am I going to get this actor back? Am I going to get uh, that location back? But finding the locations was really, really difficult. It, it's networking and calling and driving and looking and, uh, and then getting permission is a whole nother thing. How much will it cost? Will they give it to you for free? We had a lot of it donated for free, but um, a lot of it was uh, kind of expensive as well. Yeah, I can see how um, uh, it could probably <clears throat> be a logistical nightmare trying to, you know, just find the right spot. And, and then you find the right spot and now you have to deal with half a dozen different things to try to use that spot. How far away did you have to go? What was your long, your, your farthest location that you had to travel to, to, to film at? Um, that factory was the furthest location. Most of it is more or less within 20 minutes of Denver proper mm. where I live. Um, and then, um, but that one's about an hour away. And the other part of that location was that since it was essentially condemned, uh, there was no restrooms and I got 25, 30 people on, on, <laughs> on set. And so I rented a, uh, an RV, you know, we don't, we, we didn't have the budget to get trailers for all the actors. We had one trailer and that was like, you know, it had AC in there. And so like the, that's where we put on makeup and the actors could relax. And it also had a bathroom and like, you know, fancy pants director, you know, I had, <laughs> I was the guy at night that had to like empty the, the, the bathroom, you know, like, so <laughs> not a glamorous <laughs> thing. Like, I had never done that before. So I was like, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> I wish I had a guy to pay to do this, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah. What, what's your favorite memory of making a feral world? Uh, my favorite memory. Hmm. You know, I mean, it is gratifying, you know, at the end of every day <laughs> of, of the shoots, if you get everything that you were going to get, that's very gratifying. Like, Oh, mm. cause there's always like, you're running out of time and you know, you want to get all these different ways of covering things and then you run out of time, can't get it. So the days that, you couldn't do that. But my favorite memory though, is probably not the most fun day. So it was uh, on the first segment of the film, we were shooting out in this field which, by this giant uh, uh, um, tower, like a high tension tower. And we had nowhere, we had no shelter. We had one little tent, you know, like one of those tents you people put in their backyards. And uh, a thunderstorm came in and it just like, you know, lightning hit and there was no delay. Like it was, there was a bolt of lightning like right there, it was so loud and it is just pouring on us. And so we have our camera crew, you know, sitting underneath the tarp with their camera and we're sitting underneath this tor this other tarp and we're holding up the tent and water is pouring in on us. Uh, and uh, the dog is screaming. That was the day that the dog got bit. Uh, so it wasn't the most fun day, but it was also the most memorable day. Memorable day. Like right. That, my son still tells that story because I remember, uh, you know, we were in there and he was freaked out. And so I'm, the water is collecting on top of this tent. And so I was trying to like push the water up to, to make it fall out. And it, it came through and just like, in, it came into the tent and just dumped over one of our production designers. And, oh. and so, <laughs> <laughs> so that was probably the most memorable day. <laughs> okay, so you've got your script, and now you're filming. <clears throat> what was the most challenging thing about bringing your script to the screen? Um, well, the thing about the script was that when we wrote the when I when I made the movie, initially it was just part one. Like there's four parts to the movie, and each one is one oh. year later. 
but initially it was just part one and that was the movie. And I showed it at a couple of festivals and it did pretty well. Uh, people liked it, and, but I really felt like I had more story to tell. And so I decided, you know, I talked to my crew or they into it. And so I decided to keep going. And so I wrote it similar to, I imagine how they do TV shows where like segments, like what would happen? I knew where the end point was. How do I get to that end point? And so writing that script in order to, you know, let the story progress in what feels like a natural way was, was kind of the challenge there. Uh, writing in those pieces, but I did write parts. Uh, a part I wrote part two with a hint on, and then I wrote three and four in all one sitting. Uh, but the hardest part to get it to screen, I guess, you know, you, you do these table reads. You know, you get the actors together and you get them to read out loud, and you get to see what's working and what's not. And the actors really. You know, if you get the right actors, they really bring to the table things that, you, you know, you didn't even think about. Like it's mm -hmm. on the, it wasn't even on the page and the actors do this. I'm like, oh my God, that is terrific. You know, so their interpretation of it, their art form uh, really complements, you know, a script writer if, if you collaborate with the right people. And that was really fascinating for me to see the thing come to life. So I don't know if that was necessarily a challenge. Like everything about making a movie is a challenge. Uh, but that part is sort of the creative fun, you know, like how do you, you know, playing with the ideas on paper and then letting it evolve, you know, does it make sense? Is it cohesive? Would this character do that? And, you know, it's easy to look back now and say, yeah, I wish I could have tweaked that this way or that way. But, you know, that's one of those things that every filmmaker does is that you have, you know, oh boy, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. Well, this isn't your first rodeo. and you know, the, 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 I often see on social media um, among uh, independent creators, authors, filmmakers, how do I market my, how do I market my thing? How do I get my thing out there for people to see it? What, what are there any, do you have any uh, tips and tricks? And I always kind of think of it as supplements. You know, somebody could be taking these supplements and it works great for them but then this person takes them and it doesn't do anything. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's, that's kind of the, the, the feeling I get sometimes. So yeah, I'm curious to know uh, what you do to, to, uh, to get your work out there and, uh, and for people to see. You know, um, that is also really that I'm learning a whole lot about marketing um, by with this project in particular. Um, you know, nobody really, you know, like it, Hollywood movies, their their marketing budget is often larger than their production budget, you know, and I don't have any marketing budget. So that it sort of all falls on me. Uh, and so that is, you know, I've, I've been real, I've not been a prior to like this film, I've not been a Twitter guy. And uh, I'm mostly uh, Instagram and Facebook. And so I'm, I you try to build a, an audience. Um, and what feels like a large amount of people to me by Hollywood standards, it's insignificant. You know, if I have 2,000 followers, I'm like, wow, I have 2,000 followers. Uh, but they say, if you don't have 40,000 plus, nobody really cares how many followers you have. Yeah. So, you know, they look at it as, as numbers. So for me, it's a way, you know, I'm, I'm trying to spread the word through social media and trying to get people interested any way that I can. Um, and, and it is, it is a tough nut to crack because there's no right way to do it or wrong way to do it. Um, you know, so the other way is, uh, like this podcast, I know that, you know, your audience is interested in post-apocalyptic fiction. So I've kind of tried to get into, uh, those, you know, different type of communities that are interested in the same things I am, you know, people that like the walking dead, uh, on Facebook, for example, you can target your audience really specifically. You say, I wanna reach people between 24 and 55 uh, who watch Walking Dead, Book of Eli, The Road, they like those kind of things. So I can send targeted uh, messages to those people and they can choose to buy it or not, but uh, at least the awareness is, is what I'm trying to do. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that also that filmmakers, in the, like student filmmakers often, sort of neglect to think about is that 
what you're really making is a product. You know, as sad as that may sound, uh, it's an art form, but it's also a product. And if nobody buys your product, nobody cares about your art form. And so it's a combination of commerce and art. And, you know, you have to really embrace the commerce side of it if you want people to care. So in other words, you got to make a product that people want to watch. And I guess this goes back to an earlier question is like, I love these kind of movies and I know there's a lot of movies out there uh, in post-apocalyptic fiction. So I felt like there is already an audience that will want to see this, this film, uh, even just to, you know, curiosity's sake. So it would be embedding yourself in those communities as best as possible. You probably know about the Wasteland Weekend, War uh, Weekend. Uh, so there's a whole community of people that cosplay this, and, and I love that. And so, um, in fact, the first, the first, um, uh, the first film uh, actually screened at that, at that Wasteland Weekend. And so um, I was very, you know, uh, that's where I learned about uh, that, that as well. So I learned that there's this whole community of people that love that fiction as well. Um, and so it's really kind of project by project and trying to figure out how do you get people to care about it um it really depends on what it is you know like you have to say what am i providing my audience that they need and when you're making fiction they don't really need it but they might be interested in it and so you have to kind of weigh that out and try to figure out how do you get them aware and so we do have a lot of good tools um, in order, order to do that, like, you know, not just social media, but like when we did crowdfunding, we use a service called uh, Seed and Spark. And so the people that follow me on Seed and Spark, they are going to want to see the movie when it comes out. And so there's that, and then there's Kickstarter, and then there's Instagram and Facebook, and you build this network, and, and then hopefully it'll spread. But again, it's a, it's a product. Um, and so if, you're, and if your product is good, people will notice. So I was very fortunate. I actually uh, recently, uh, the film was picked up by a company called Gravitas Ventures. And so they're actually a real distribution company. So that's going to make the film uh, worldwide accessible in, in the near future. So that was a big relief to me because otherwise, if I was doing it DIY like I've done in the past, uh, it had been you know, a lot less of an audience than this one will largely get. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I know you were planning on uh, submitting it to some film festivals and then the whole COVID thing happened. What, how did that change your, how did that change your plans of, uh, of doing the, the festivals? Uh, yeah, you know, festivals are an interesting thing. And, you know, before I got signed to Gravitas, the way I was thinking about it was that I needed to get into film festivals because that's another way to market your movie. If your film gets into a film festival, now you get the buzz of uh, being accepted in these festivals. In fact, we sat on the film for probably like eight, nine months because I was waiting to see if I got into South by Southwest and Tribeca and some of these other film festivals. Uh, and then when those festivals didn't happen, I, you know, the, you know, first of all, I didn't get into those festivals, but I got into other festivals. Uh, so, it one of the film festivals I got into, which I was actually really excited about, is at the Phoenix Film Festival. They have a, a subcategory called uh, the, uh, the, in, the International Sci-Fi and Horror Film Festival. And it got into that, and I was planning on going and presenting it there. And it's a really nice festival, good people that run it. And then COVID happened, and it got postponed, which I appreciate, because a lot of the film, instead of cancel, that is. Mm -hmm. And then the, a lot of film festivals also are going to an online model. And that doesn't interest me as much because I fear putting the film out online is just going to attract more piracy. And uh, mm. also if the film goes online, some distribution companies don't want your movie if it's already been online. And so that's an unknown whether or not the film festivals, I mean, would impact the distribution outlet. So, um, and every, and every company is different and every festival is handling it differently, but I'm hopeful that the festival will still happen and I can go and do it. But I'm also waiting on a whole bunch of others that I still submitted to. Uh, but I, I, the, one of the other things that is interesting about film festivals is that if you get in, yeah, it's a little marketing, but the truth of it is, is that a film festival 
is largely about ego. You know, it makes the filmmaker feel good that your film is validated and a jury has selected your film. And, and that has a lot of value to keep you going on the path as a filmmaker. Like, oh, people like my movie, so I'll keep going. But the truth of it is, of all the festivals that I've ever attended, not any of them have ever really led to more work. What they have, I, they've led me to networking and meeting interesting people and having a fun time. But it doesn't necessarily help your movie unless you get into the big ones. You know, if you get into Sundance, if you get into Tribeca or South by or Toronto, those are the ones that will could be career changers. But then you need to have a really solid product, you know. And and when distribution companies look at your film, they think about it in terms like, can I make money on this? Mm. And so they're not looking at it as like, gee, I really like this movie. They're like, can I make money on it? So they have to see it as a is it marketable? How do I market this thing? So if you're making like a really sad, depressed movie, a drama uh, that no, you know, like, it's, you know, not to say that there isn't value and it isn't interesting, but the truth of it is that they're going to look at it like, I don't know how to sell this. Like, if you don't have any famous people in it, especially they're not going to know how to sell it. And, uh, and so that's one of the other things about, um, you know, marketing that kind of comes to surface that's related to the festivals. What would be the one thing that that you want people to take away from your film? Uh, I, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've, I am a cinephile and I've watched way too many movies than probably I should have in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I, and so I've become a little jaded when it comes to movies, because if it's about a serial killer, if it's about a cop, if it's about, uh, you know, I don't know, the tropes that we see so mm -hmm. often, I try to move away from it. Like I'm really interested in movies that make me feel something when the movie is over. Like it, right. I don't like, I don't mind depressing. I don't mind sad. I don't, I'm happy. All of it is good. As long as I feel something, if it's very forgetting, if you forget it quickly afterwards, I think that is my biggest fear. So all along I kept thinking like, yeah, it's a science fiction movie and it's got a lot of really great special effects and locations and costumes, but I want you to care about my characters. I want you to feel for them. If somebody dies, I'm like, oh no, somebody died. Like, like the things that in the movie that are upsetting to people are the things that I want. If you care about my characters and they, because of what happens to them, then I feel like I've succeeded. I want you to like my people and worry for them and, and be engaged in the film. That's my goal all along is, is like not to focus on shootouts and chase scenes, but like, do you care about the people? Do they make you cry? Do they make you laugh? That kind of thing. I noticed on your website that you have um, a list of your top 10 favorite uh, post-apocalypse movies. If you had to bring that down to three, what would those three be? And they don't have to be, okay, this is my, this is my first favorite. This is my second favorite. They can all have equal value, but they all have to, they, there can only be three uh, favorite PA movies. Okay. I would start out with Book of Eli. I love that movie. I think Book of Eli is brilliant. Um, and uh, whenever I, uh, whenever I watch that, I feel like these guys know, these guys played Fallout. You know, these, mm -hmm. like, it looks like Fallout. You know, I'm a big fan of that game, and that was a big inspiration for me as well. Uh, but Book of Eli is one. Um, and then I would say uh, The Road Warrior. And, it's, and I loved Fury Road. Loved it. But, I, but inspiration, like, I, I'm still a big fan of the, the uh, Mel Gibson um, uh, Mad Max. Mm -hmm. So I think The Road Warrior would be part two. Uh, and then the next one, I think that I would probably select... Hmm, I'd have to bring it down to three. Yep. Uh, let's see here. I really inspired or great movies. I would probably go with Children of Men. That mm. was another one that I really uh, Interesting. felt a, a strong bond with. I wanted to ask another question. The We have post-apocalyptic fiction and we have dystopian fiction. And I would like to hear, I don't know if there's an, uh, an authority out there that says this is what the difference this is officially what the difference is be because I don't really feel like anyone has that authority I think it's all something that we just kind of decide for ourselves but I'd, I'd like to know 
what uh, what you think are the differences, what makes something post-apocalyptic and what makes something dystopian and, and, and how do you separate those two? You know, I don't, I'm not an expert or I don't claim to be on that, but here's what, here's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. I would say that um, post-apocalyptic to me feels like visually it's a, a, a decrepit destroyed world that we're used to seeing is now grown over like images of Chernobyl. That's mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic to me. Dystopian is like this overall control of the government, you know, like it's more like subdued as far as like your rights have been taken away from you and you're not even aware of it. You know, like that to me, like, like Gattaca or something like that feels like dystopia or 1984. Uh, those sort of things feel like dystopia to me. Um, so it's not necessarily the end of civilization. It's a, it's a civilization that has been altered to something uh, so different from what we see, um, but it's out there. Like, uh, what's the other one? Elysium. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, oh, Elysium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that to me feels dystopian where uh, there is a society. It's just not this society. Right. That's how I feel about it. I'm really glad to hear that uh, Book of Eli is is one of your top three. I, I think it's my top favorite PA movie. And uh, I, I kind of, part of me doesn't like saying that because I'm a huge fan of uh, PA movies from like the 70s, uh, well, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the, the kind of the older stuff. But man, when that Book of Eli came out, it, it just, it pushed every single button from beginning to end and great villain. Yeah. I mean, just, Oh, and then that, that when when you find out, you know, at the end and, and I don't know if you've, if you've probably watched it a number of times, but with each subsequent viewing, you catch just little things where you're like, Oh, yep. Yep. And, and it's kind of like, and I, and I love that because it, it keeps you watching it again because you want to catch more of those, of those little uh, things that happen that, uh, that give a clue as to, you know, what the deal is uh, that just, you know, didn't even notice whatsoever when you watched it the first time. You know, I have to say the first time I watched it, I didn't catch the, the big reveal at the end, you know, I, and then oh. like, you know, and, and so it didn't occur to me. I don't know. Can we talk about the spoiler? <laughs> yeah, it's been, what, it's been, many it's been like years, 10 years, I, I think. Or like, I didn't get that he was blind just because he could read Braille. Like, it occurred to me, like, well, maybe he could read Braille uh, and not be blind. Because, like, right. the martial arts that he was doing is like, a blind guy can't do that, you know, unless right. you're a daredevil or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you can't do that. So, it, I didn't, I was looking at it from a realistic point of view. But as I watched it in subsequent times, I'm like, you know, maybe he is blind and it could go either way, really, if you really look at the movie, but it's much more interesting to think that he was blind. Right. Uh, Therefore the music meant much more to him. And yeah. 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 And I just, I figured he had a Braille Bible because that was just the last surviving, the the last surviving Bible just happened to be Braille, you know, and, and, and they did such a good job at having him do all of this, you know, these martial arts and just kicking ass that you never for a moment thought that, you know, well, blind guy can't do that. So it's, it's just a Braille Bible. That's, you know, and he happens to know Braille. So I felt foolish a little bit when my friend told me, Oh no, man, he's totally blind. (laughs) (laughs) Now I gotta watch this again. I'm an idiot. (laughs) Yeah. And I also like the fact that it's just a standalone, you know, yes. It's It's not a, I'm wondering, like, I can't remember. How did the movie do? Like, did it? Did, I don't think it was a big f- success, but I think it has this cult following now. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it did uh, in the box office or anything. I don't recall hearing that it tanked or or yeah. or anything. And maybe it did. It, you know, movies tank all the time that I absolutely love. I I, I just I don't maybe. pay attention to any of that. Yeah. You know, and and, and part of me is like. I don't care what people think about things, but here I am doing a podcast and I'm on social media, you know, spreading the word about stuff that I love. So I don't care about what you think, but you better care about what I think. You know? <laughs> and so I feel like a total jerk uh, in that regard. But I, I, I guess I, I don't care 
it's more, I don't care if people hate things. If you don't like something, I don't care, you know, and, but, but that seems to be what gets the clicks and the, and the views and all that stuff. And, um, you know, uh, top 10 worst this and top 10 worst that, and, you know, I'd much rather know what uh, people like and uh, I'd rather talk about things that I like and, yeah, I have a big problem. With, you know, everyone is a critic these days, and that's mm-hmm. a little bit disheartening, you know, and, and I guess we're all guilty of it, you know, but at the same point, it's really hard to make a movie. And so, like, even the worst movies that have been made, you know, you have to, like, imagine the crew on the set waking up early to do the thing. Yeah. So, like, I have a soft spot in my heart, even for bad movies. It doesn't mean I like it. It doesn't necessarily mean I'll watch it either, but, you know, I, I just know how how much passion goes into it, you know? Right. So it's really hard for me to like dismiss it at the same point, you know, it feels good when somebody validates your tastes, you know, or, mm-hmm. or if somebody says they went to see mama Mia and I'm like, Oh, I'm never going to go see that. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> but they loved it and that's okay. You know, that's right. like, that's their thing. Yep. But at the same point, like I'm very snobbish when it comes to my tastes, I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to be a, what do they call it? A literary tribalist where I, (laughs) and uh, the the same way with, with uh, movies and and TV, it's, if it's not, if it's not, you know, a wasteland or aliens and laser beams, I really (laughs) don't have any interest in it whatsoever, you know, (laughs) but you know, that's okay. Everyone's got different tastes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love the uh, uh, post-apocalyptic genre, obviously, but like, I would say some of my top movies are not post-apocalyptic just because it goes back to my wanting to feel something, you know? And, right. and so there's like, you know, I, I like movies like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Me, Earl and the Dying Girl. Or no. there's another movie called Flower, which is on Hulu. Those movies are just terrific. And, um, you know, it's about people you care about and good performances. And so as a director, I'm always looking to see like, you know, when it, when a performance moves me like Joker, you know, that was another mm-hmm. one that just moved me by the, by the way that people performed, uh, that just blows me away when, when, uh, when I see that happening, like, you know, it's hard for a lot of people to recognize good acting and bad acting, but you know, good acting when you see it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, it, and, you know, it's, it's a lot like, it's a lot like books, you know, movies and books are, are a lot the same way. And, I've been doing a rewatch of, of um, uh, different Star Trek series and, you know, everybody loves DS nine. I have tried watching DS nine at least a half a dozen times over the past couple months. I can't get past the first episode. I've tried skipping a couple episodes ahead. I've tried. I am with you, man. I, agree I can't do 100%. it. And I'm watching Voyage. I think the captain is not viable at all. Like, I don't think he's a good actor. I, I like him, but I have, I, d- I don't care about any of the, any of the characters, you know, Cork is kind of funny and, and I just, but I started rewatching Voyager and I, I think Voyager might turn out to be my favorite Star Trek show. I like every single character on there and I care about every character on there. And, um, I didn't think I was going to at first because that first couple episodes, uh, Bellana Torres is just way too screamy and yelly and Klingon-y. <laughs> and, but they shut that down really quick. And she's, I mean, she's one of the best characters on there. She's just awesome. Yes. And, um, but Voyager is generally kind of ranked at the bottom of people's favorite Star Trek series. Hmm. So, you know, I, who knows I, no i never actually saw enterprise i never watched that series but i've been meaning to yeah it's it's pretty good i uh my wife and i uh went through that last year we watched it and um yeah i certainly didn't dislike it but i don't know for whatever reason watching voyager right now i'm just hooked i can't stop huh good but, good yeah all right well i think we've run the gamut we got a little bit of star trek in there yeah yeah well, that's <laughs> It was a real pleasure talking to you. I, I, thanks Likewise. for coming on to the show. I really enjoyed it. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I learned a lot. And um, I appreciate you letting me pick your brain about some of your, uh, uh, what, what goes on 
to uh to make an indie film and and all that and i wanted to mention that um you know when you talk about a film being a product uh ultimately um and you know you kind of have you kind of have to have a hook you know you got to hook hook the people in to to watch this and i uh the hook for me was the fact that uh you spent uh four years filming it so that we could watch you know the character grow you know in in a real time uh type of thing i was like oh i i have to <laughs> I have to watch this. That's, that's amazing. Cause then it made me think of my, you know, my kids and yeah, stuff, so. I mean, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause uh, to me, that was one of the big selling points as well. I mean, I actually love the film boyhood. Um, I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about it, but if you're a parent, you can't not, not like that movie. Right. Like it's, it's very moving, but my students don't find, they find it very boring because they've never had children, you know? Right. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, when can, uh, you said you got a distributor, how will, how, how will that be distributed? Will it be on DVD or streaming? And, and when can we expect to be able to watch, watch the movie? So my understanding is, uh, I don't know exactly what platform it's going to start on, but it'll be uh, internet-based, obviously, streaming services. Okay. Uh, it's, it's got a scheduled release date of September 22nd, and so pre-orders are going to come on sale uh, probably in the next month or two, uh, okay. so that, and, and if we can get 250 people to pre-order it, then Gravitas goes to the next level as far as uh, being able to sell it to other platforms. Uh, mm. it, it'll so that that's something that I'm going to be working on to try to get that 250. But um, uh, yeah, so I, my guess it'll start on Amazon and iTunes is probably where it'll start. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I'll definitely definitely make sure that I keep in touch with you uh, on yes. social media and uh, uh, get that thing pre-ordered so I can so we can get that up to the next level and get it out there because it looks really good. Thanks, it, man. it looks really really good. I really want to watch this. All right, David been a pleasure i really appreciate your time and doing this with me i enjoyed it i did too thank you very much for coming on yeah for sure have a good day man you too bye-bye yeah and there we have david lieban the writer producer and director of a feral world david's web website is feralmovie.net and i highly suggest going there and uh, if you want to learn more about about a feral world he's got lots of pictures and and backstory and whatnot uh, he can also be found on Twitter at Feral Filmmaker, uh, at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Feral Movie One, the number one, and Instagram, Feral underscore Filmmaker. I'd like to take a moment and mention that I have been accepted into a podcast network. Uh, it's called the SIP Network, which stands for the Slightly Irregular Podcast Network. I feel like I'll fit right in. Uh, I'm really excited to be included with this uh, group of podcasters, and uh, I'd like to go ahead and tell you about them right now. We have the Terrible Terror podcast, in which Brian gives his thoughts and reviews of movies and television shows. We have the podcast from Another World, in which Phantom Dark Dave's take Phantom Dark Dave takes a look at horror and science fiction throughout the years. Anything from silent films, obscure B-movies, monsters, classic sci-fi, and even the occasional trauma film. And uh, Dave's podcast from another world is actually found on the Terrible Terror podcast. And I believe he puts out two episodes a month. So look for him there. We also have uh, Dead Hand Radio, a podcast uh, about the Cold War and Andrew discusses its effects on our culture, technology, and the future. The Paranormal Pativity Podcast, where Patrick discusses ghosts and anything paranormal and supernatural, taken from his personal experiences and movies and television shows. And we have the Angry Dad Podcast, where Big Ben Bullman tells it like it is, given his thoughts on anything and everything that affects our lives on a daily basis. We have the Back in Time podcast. It's a unique journey into the depths of the films that defined a generation. Join Kyle and JD as they examine the year each movie came out, the original trailer, box office numbers, critic response, production, and provide a play-by-play -play of the story. And we've got the Fave Five from Fans podcast. 
in which Jamie Ray invites a friend with whom he shares a common interest in some pop culture topic, i.e. horror movies, literature, toys, etc. And they each make a list of their favorite, favorite five things from that common genre. And then there's me. So go ahead and, uh, the website for the SIP network is sipnet.us. So go ahead and take a visit there and, uh, there's something for everybody and, uh, do what you can to support these fine group of podcasters. Thanks again for listening to the show and until next time, take cover and take care.